Hello, entertainment law nerds, enthusiasts, and aficionados, and welcome to another episode of the Dentons Canada Entertainment Media Law Signal Podcast. Today's episode is another installment in our ongoing entertainment law building blocks series. I'm your host, Bob Tarantino, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Kareen Kazakevich. But before we get too far into the discussion, our usual disclaimer. Dentons is a global legal practice providing client services worldwide through its member firms and affiliates. This episode is not designed to provide legal or other advice, and you should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Please see Dentons.com for legal notices. Hi, Kareen. How are you? Hi, Bob. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. So today we are talking about clearances and permission. That's right. So as a reminder, this series is all about foundational entertainment law building blocks. So all the things you'd want to know as an entertainment lawyer, as a producer, or as a person interested in law and the creative space. Last week, we talked about ownership and control. And today we're pivoting into permissions and clearances, a very important part of entertainment law. And something worth taking the time to understand and also do correctly. So having said that, Bob, let's get into some questions. Sounds good. I mean, I know clearances can be kind of a mysterious process for a lot of people. Um, It's one that involves a lot of legal advice, if it's done properly. So why don't we jump into that and see what light we can shed on that process for people? Where should we start? Okay, so our first question is a basic one. And it's really, what even is a clearance? And how do you get one? Sometimes we can fall into the trap of thinking that clearances are a one and done thing. But if you're doing it correctly, it's really a bigger process. So maybe to narrow it down and to provide an example, we can consider a script clearance or a script clearance report. So this is a report that basically has gone through your script. It's highlighted any potential issues or conflicts. Think character names, product placements, locations you're using, anything that might become a legal issue down the road. The report flags it for you. It indicates that you need to get a clearance what do you do? What is the clearance? And how do you go about this? So I think the best way, there's two kind of frames or lenses that I would suggest using when thinking about clearances. And I I really like the fact that you open that description with an acknowledgement that this is a process, right? So clearance is best understood as a process. And in terms of what a clearance is, clearance is really just permission right? It's the, it's the process of getting permission to use things that are protected by some kind of legal right in a film or television project. And so as you noted, the process often begins with, or, or at least somewhere, hopefully early in the stage uh, of the development and creation of, of a project, there is that script report. You get that script report, a whole bunch of things have been flagged. And I think at that point, the response has to be a determination in conjunction with legal counsel as to what permission entails or what permission is required in that case. So the nature of that permission and the form of that permission is going to change depending on what it is that we're talking about, right? Like each individual item or element that has been flagged in the the script report is going to be, is potentially going to be subject to a slightly different 
clearance process. Sometimes we're talking about things that are protected by copyright. Sometimes we're talking about things that are protected by trademark rights. Sometimes we're talking about things that may be the subject of what we can refer to as personality rights. Sometimes there might be some kind of defamation concern. So all of those different scenarios present different or, or prompt or should prompt different responses in terms of the clearance process. So are there some examples that we want to start with just to kind of walk through how that might look and, and what we might do? Sure. So I'm going to start with one and I know that it's complicated, but I think a lot of producers and content creators really have to deal with this issue often and that's music. And this is a tough one because the world of music licensing can be a really scary one to navigate if you've never done it before and you have no idea what to ask or what to look for. But sometimes you just really have your heart set on that one song you really want to use in your project. So let's say that we have two characters talking in a cafe, you really want to have a song playing in the background. How would you even start to go about this? So it's a good starting point because frankly, music is the most complicated clearance question. Um, so the starting point I think has to be recognition that when you're talking about music, colloquially, we are really referring to two different sets of copyright rights. So the first set of rights is the rights in the musical composition. And the second set of rights is the rights in the sound recording that contains that musical composition embodied on it. So if I'm thinking about a popular song, there is a song, right? Like the lyrics and the melodies and the harmonies that have been written by a composer. And then those are performed by people and they are recorded on a sound recording. So two different sets of rights. In order to obtain those rights, I generally have to go to two different sources or sets of people. For the composition, I need to talk to one or more music publishers. And for the sound recording, I need to talk to usually one, um, but could be multiple, but usually uh, the single owner of the sound recording rights, which in, in the case of sort of popular music is most often going to be a record company. So a good music supervisor, the one of the signal contributions that they make is knowing who to contact at those different music publishers and record companies. So, but like I said, that's a great point to start the conversation at because it's incredibly complicated. Um, I encourage listeners to listen to the previous episode on the Denton's Entertainment Media Law Signal podcast. We really have to edit that down. It's a lot of words um, that I recorded with uh, our colleague, David Steinberg, where he and I talked about music licensing. Amazing. Okay, so now, Bob, I'm going to throw you a curveball. And this is another question inspired by film school, Corrine. So one time I had a director who was really hoping to use an old song in a short film that we were producing. And I think the song was composed in like 1888. So definitely an older song has been around for a while. And they asked me, you know, could we use the song without asking for permission? And that's when young producer Corrine took to Google and I learned about the public domain for the first time. And my thought at the time was that it was probably okay because the copyright had expired by then. But of course, if you were in this position, what would your advice be about works that appear to be in the public domain and free to use? Is this something that you still need to consider in the clearances process? Is it a red flag? Or can you just assume that it's okay to use it? 
Sure. So I think, again, we have to keep in mind that what we are doing in the clearance process is identifying what permissions are needed. And I guess the sort of little asterisk to that is what permissions, if any, are needed, right? And so we may look at the piece of content that we want to use, and we might conclude, oh, in fact, there is no permission required, right? For, for some of a variety of reasons, or one of which might be the thing that we want to use is in the public domain. Um, or we might be able to make a plausible fair dealing argument or fair use argument. Um, the problem with those is those are both very, very complicated analyses to undertake in a lot of cases. In some cases, they are like perfectly straightforward, right? If you want to recite a line of, or a bunch of lines of Shakespeare's love sonnets, no problem. Those are clearly in the public domain but it gets tricky after that. So in the example that you've noted, if you have a musical composition, which is a couple hundred years old, certainly the musical composition itself, or almost certainly the musical composition itself, we'll get to why it's only an almost, um, is in the public domain. But the sound recording of that musical composition almost certainly, almost equally certainly, is not in the public domain and is protected by copyright and will need permission, um, written permission in order to, to make use of it. The other complication here is when we talk about clearances, we can't really have the conversation in isolation focused only on the legal analysis, right? Clearance is a process that involves legal analysis, but it's a process which you undertake in the context of an errors and emissions insurance policy. And that errors and emissions insurance policy will have a variety of what are referred to as clearance procedures attached to it. And those are basically the rules of the road that the insurance company says you have to follow uh, in order to obtain coverage under that policy if something goes wrong. So clearance takes place at the interface between legal analysis, insurance risk analysis, and just general kind of business risk analysis. Um, and that can be frustrating for everybody involved, right? Because as ambiguous as the legal analysis might be, the risk analysis might be even more ambiguous and it's not really a decision that the lawyers can make. Um, so it, it can be frustrating for people to go through the clearance process. Uh, and so like, I'll give you another kind of goofy example, public domain example, which I think people can find frustrating. Let's talk about like paintings, old paintings, right? Like the Mona Lisa is the one I usually default to. The Mona Lisa was painted in 1450 or nine and whatever. It's like at least 500 years old. The painting itself is clearly in the public domain. The problem is you're not using or a producer is not using the painting in their movie, right? They are using a photograph of the movie, uh, of the painting. That photograph, like the sound recording in the example we talked about earlier, is almost certainly protected by copyright. Um, and you have to look to figure out whether you have permission to use that photograph. Now, I haven't looked at this in a couple of years. It used to be the case that the Louvre, which is the museum in France, which actually owns and holds the physical copy of the Mona Lisa, asserted copyright 
in its photographs of the Mona Lisa. And so if you wanted to make a, make use of a photograph, you know, from the Louvre website of the Mona Lisa, you'd have to go to the Louvre and ask permission to do that. Now, what's changed in, in recent years is some institutions have implemented open licensing policies where they have made those photographs available on an open license basis, meaning you don't need to get the permission, but that's the kind of rabbit hole you can often go down in trying to figure out what permissions, if any, are required to make use of a particular piece of, uh, you know, expression or, or, or content that you want to include in a project. Right. So the process is not always as simple or clear as you may initially think it is. And since you brought up public libraries of work that people can use, I think that that transitions us well into the next question, which is all about stock footage. So nowadays, there are a lot of public websites that you can use to download photos and videos that you can use in your projects. And the websites will describe the material as royalty free or sometimes I see copyright free and, you know, fully okay to use for whatever purposes you want. So according to that description, you know, you could use the content for a slideshow for a school project, or you could also put it in a commercial that's broadcasted nationwide, because presumably both uses are okay according to the website. Do you think that there is a concern with using websites that say this? And do you think that producers need to undertake a better due diligence process if they're going to be using that kind of content? Absolutely. Uh, stock licenses are a potential minefield. And what makes it even more challenging is that the licenses that are used, um, even by very big brand name, reputable stock libraries, um, seem to change just about sort of quarterly. Um, so even if you've sort of had one of those stock licenses reviews, like you know, a year ago, and everybody gave it the thumbs up, you have to check to see what the current license is that they're offering their materials under. But those stock licenses uh, can put, can pose real pitfalls. Um, so for example, some of the some of the concerns that we often find is the licenses simply are not a lot of those licenses simply are not designed for use of the material in film and television projects. So for example, they will sometimes have restrictions on the number of copies that you can make, right? which is really not helpful. So it might say something along the lines of, you can use this photo clip, whatever, um, in your project, um, but you can only make 50,000 copies. Okay, well, that's a real problem because if your film uh, is going to be downloaded more than 50,000 times or streamed more than 50,000 times, or if there's going to be more than 50,000 DVDs that are made, uh, you're going to trip up against that restriction and you're then going to be in breach of the license. Another big concern is that those licenses are often worded in such a way that they are not transferable in any way. So they are not transferable, they're not sub-licensable, uh, they're not assignable. That poses real problems because the way that a lot of film and television productions are created they are created by single purpose entities who exist solely for the purpose of making the project. And then they transfer the entire project and all of the contracts entered into in connection with that project to somebody else. And under the terms of that stock license agreement, they are not allowed to do that. That's a breach of the license and they lose their rights to use the thing which they have purportedly licensed. Um, those life stock licenses often also don't have provisions that are customary 
or viewed as customary or viewed as required under ENO insurance policy requirements. So for example, most ENO insurance policies will require that all contracts entered into or all licenses entered into contain what's called a no injunctive relief clause, which says something along the lines of, if there's a breach of this contract, the only thing that you can sue for is monetary damages. You can't sue to obtain an injunction uh, to enjoin or otherwise prevent or restrict the exploitation of the project itself. I would guess that 99 plus percent of the, of the stock licenses that are sort of uh, conventionally offered on the internet do not include that language. So your first step is you have to, if you want to make use of the stock license, is you have to have the lawyer review that license to determine whether it works. If it doesn't work, um, sometimes some of the stock providers have special sort of film and TV project riders or addendums or alternate licenses. So you may have to call them and say, we want to use this thing that we found on your website but we don't want to use it under your normal template license. We need your film and TV license. Sometimes that will address the problem. Um, and then, you know, sometimes there are sort of problems which the lawyer will identify and say, look, the, these are risks. The license sort of works, it sort of doesn't work. Um, and at that point, we get into that whole discussion that I alluded to earlier, uh, where the producer has to start making a decision as to whether they want to take the risk on of entering into a license that sort of works, but sort of doesn't work. Uh, and that's not really a legal decision to make. It's not one that the lawyer can make. The most the lawyer can do is say, I don't think you should do this. Um, but then it's up to the producer to decide whether they want to do it because they really need that piece of content in their movie. Right. So I hope that uh, all the listeners who have stock footage in their projects or intend to are going to heed the warning and take some time to review that and really consider if your five seconds of beach waves uh, that you downloaded off the internet is worth it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, there's some really dangerous stock licenses out there. Um, so yeah, definitely, definitely, if at any point you are making a filmed entertainment project and you encounter a stock license, you have to talk to a lawyer about that stock license. Right. So on the topic of avoiding mistakes when following your creative vision, why don't we go to our next question, which is how do you make a movie about a person and their life? We see this a lot in popular culture, a lot of famous popular movies or biopics, and thinking about the rights to tell someone's life story is sometimes hard to wrap your head around because it's not the same as licensing, you know, a song or art to use in your film. And it's also complicated because you can't copyright facts. And in making a film about someone's life, you could try to argue that someone's life is really just a collection of facts and therefore you weren't breaking any rules. So let's say that you wanted to do this. You have a role model, you really want to make a movie about them. Can you just go up to them and say, hey, are you cool if I do this? Or is it, as I would expect, a more complicated process? It is fantastically more complicated than that, but it's a really rich topic to discuss and it's something that engages a lot of interesting considerations so i i think we should flag here we are going to restrict this conversation solely to canadian uh common law analysis i'm not even going to get into the analysis that may obtain under quebec law i'm going to stick to canadian common law analysis um and i like i really like your starting point there of saying that you know the someone's life story is really just a collection of facts about that person. Um, I think that's absolutely right. 
And so I think oftentimes a useful starting point in the analysis is to say there, there is no restriction. The default view should be there is no restriction on using, uh, telling somebody's life story um, unless something else comes into play to restrict it. That analysis um, gets complicated by what we in Canada, or at least in the common law provinces, refer to as the tort of misappropriation of personality, um, sometimes referred to as the tort of appropriation of personality. And I don't like calling it appropriation. It should be misappropriation of personality because it indicates that something, the miss indicates something wrong has happened. So the tort of misappropriation of personality um, gives people a tort claim if their name, image, likeness, or other indicia of their personality have been used in connection uh, with commercial exploitation activities. Uh, as the courts, the, the, the courts have consistently said, starting with the Glenn Gould case, that you have to draw a distinction between the sort of subject use and use in commerce of somebody's personality in connection with uh, a project. So in that case, they, it was a book about the late composer Glenn Gould. And the court said essentially, look, freedom of expression concerns mean that we can't give people an unfettered right to control the use of their name, image, likeness, and other elements of their personality. If you could do that, if you did do that, then a lot of journalism wouldn't you know, be allowed to happen. A lot of creative activity wouldn't be allowed to happen. And so we have to have some and a fairly large remit um, allowance for talking about other people. So the constraint on that is we say, you can't use somebody's personality in connection with things that look like endorsements. Right? So you can't use a famous person's image in connection with the sale of a good or the provision of a service. That starts to look like the tort of misappropriation of personality. But if you're just using that famous person's image in connection with telling that famous person's story, that canonically is not or should not be viewed as engaging the tort of misappropriation of personality. Um, so there's a line that you kind of have to navigate there, of course. So, you know, if I want to tell the story of former prime minister, uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, I don't need his, his state's permission, um, to tell that story. Uh, what happens if I'm telling his story, it's going to involve other people who might still be alive. Um, can I use their names and images and, and other personal indicia in telling his story? What if I'm telling the story of people who aren't famous, who aren't, you know, sort of part of the Canadian historical record? Um, I would say the answer is generally you can use those things, those indicia without their permission, but it starts getting into some murkier waters when you're dealing with things like privacy rights uh, and certainly defamation and things like that start getting um, they, they complicate the analysis to, uh, to a great degree. So if somebody wants to tell a story about which involves 
a per real person living or dead. Uh, that's another example of a scenario where you certainly should engage legal counsel early on in the process to identify what the limitations and constraints are. Um, those limitations and constraints might be personality right related. They might be related to the tort of misappropriation of personality. Um, they may just as often be uh, engaged or, or, or engage issues of privacy, invasion of privacy and defamation and other, other legal claims. And the topic of legal claims brings us nicely to our last question of the episode, which is all about errors and omissions insurance or ENO insurance. So you've mentioned this earlier in the podcast, and the question is really, how should we be thinking about ENO insurance? Is it more of a backup plan? So, you know, for example, yeah, we didn't get that one clearance, but it's fine. We're covered by ENO insurance. Is it more of a formality? Is it something you don't want to touch with a 10 foot pole? What is the right way to think about ENO? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Um, so, <laughs> thinking of ENO insurance as sort of a get out of jail free card is absolutely the wrong way uh, to think about it. So, you you it's not that you get ENO insurance and then you go, oh, I don't need anybody's permission. I don't need to worry about clearances anymore. Um, ENO insurance is uh, it, it's not difficult to get, but it involves engaging in that process that we referred to earlier and doing so in a very diligent way. So the, the analogy I often like to draw is if you get insurance on your house, you know, the insurance on your house is supposed to be there. If your house burns down, the insurance company is going to pay you a bunch of money to compensate you for the loss of your house and all of your possessions. Um, but the insurance company doesn't have to pay you if you set fire to your house. Right? Like if you deliberately burn your house down, the insurance company says, no, we're not going to pay for that. That makes intuitive sense to everybody. At least I hope it does. Um, similarly with E&O insurance, the, the insurance company doesn't sort of issue a policy and say, we will pay you come hell or high water, come what may, uh, you have to abide by the clearance procedures which are attached to that insurance policy. Uh, and those clearance procedures set out all of the things that you need to get permission for uh, and all the steps that you need to take in order to comply with those procedures. So just to tie this back into the earlier discussion a little bit, those clearance procedures are often more restrictive than the legal analysis would otherwise dictate, right? So a lot of those clearance procedures will not allow for fair dealing or fair use arguments, right? Insurance companies are not in the business of getting into infringement claims. Um, They're in the business of avoiding them to, for the most part. Um, and so they, many insurance companies, particularly in the current environment, simply don't want to hear fair use or fair dealing arguments, right? Their position will be get written permission, otherwise don't use it. Um, so if the if a neo policy is put in place and the way that that is usually started is by filling out an application and you have to fill out the application truthfully and accurately. Uh, if you lie or, you know, deliberately make mistakes on it, uh, the insurance company can deny coverage in the event of a claim. Uh, and they can also deny coverage in the event of a claim if the clearance procedures were not followed. So you have to get e insurance for what I'll call commercial grade uh, productions, anything that's going to be exploited by you know, a TV station, 
uh, an over-the-top service, uh, any kind of uh, theatrical exhibitor, uh, all of those people will require them, you know, insurance policy be put in place. So you have to get it. Um, in order to get it and in order to abide by it, you have to engage in the clearance process and you have to get all of those required permissions or figure out if permissions truly are not required. Um, and then if a claim comes in and you filled out the application correctly and you abide by the clearance procedures, then absolutely the insurance company will defend that claim in accordance with the terms of that policy. So, you know, insurance is required in virtually every case that we engage with uh, and is a really nice thing to have. Um, but it comes with a bunch of caveats or conditions, right? You have to abide by those clearance procedures and that abiding by those clearance procedures really makes up a lot of the clearance process that we've been talking about. So we've talked a lot today about clearances and permissions and insurance, and yeah, it's not the most exciting part of making your creative projects, but it is super important. And assessing your risks, especially when you can do that with people who really understand them, can save you a lot of time and money and headaches down the road. It's not a one-day thing, it is a process, but it's also part of the bigger creative goal that everyone wants to see come to life. Absolutely. And I think that's really worth stressing, right? That A, it's a process, but B, it's a process that should start at the beginning, right? Uh, it's It makes everybody's life a lot easier and a lot cheaper if the lawyers are involved in the clearance process, like right at the development stage, as opposed to bringing us in, you know, once footage has already been shot and, you know, edited and locked, never do that. That's a horrifying scenario for everybody involved. So, Look, I, I totally get that people don't love hiring lawyers. We're expensive. Uh, we're annoying. Uh, we don't always give people the answers that they want, but we are. it's a much more pleasant experience for everybody involved if we are involved early on as opposed to late in the process. Awesome. Well, thanks, Kareen. That was great. And thanks to all of our listeners. And please join us again on another episode of the Denton's Canada Entertainment Media Law Signal podcast. And we look forward to speaking with you soon.